0: 753 in your Pew Bible. The Bible is about redemption for the glory of God. Hosea fits this perfectly and gives us one of the most unique pictures of redemption in all of the Scriptures. You recall that Hosea was a citizen of the Northern Kingdom, the first side of Israel that fell off into apostasy. And really, only two prophets particularly focus on the northern kingdom. Amos, in much harsher words than Hosea, and then also Hosea. Now, Isaiah and other prophets will refer to the north, but these two prophets in particular focus on the sliding northern kingdom. Hosea is given an unusual and difficult yet painful task of marrying someone who is adulteress. She was adulteress before he married her and then she proved to be continuing in adultery after they were married. In this painful picture that every human being could somehow connect with is a picture of God and his people. We don't identify with the hero of the story, Hosea. We identify with Gomer, the adulterous woman. And it's this picture of how... Though we're saved by God, redeemed by God, we still stray in how God goes after us and saves us. And this picture of him buying back his adulterous wife is vivid. The, the cost it was uh, in the life of Hosea to buy back his adulterous wife. Well, the cost that God paid to buy us, to redeem us, is the blood of his son. That's the constant backdrop of the story of Redemption. The first three chapters focus on this picture. In the rest of the book, the the rest of the 14 chapters, you have uh, the particular charges against the people of God with this consistent promise of ultimate restoration and grace. We come now to chapter 5. I will read chapter 5 leading into the first three verses, chapter 6. Hear God's word. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn of Gi- in Gibeon, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rock to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, and Ephraim, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days. He will revive us on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let us pray. Father, we read in these words a pointedness regarding sin. Lord, we read in these words a promise of your grace. Lord, for this opportunity of repentance again this morning as we see that you know all things and we cannot hide anything from you, I pray that the only response from us today, reading this some 2,700 years after it was penned, would be repentance once again. And Lord, maybe our forefathers did not immediately respond, but oh, the generations since, as this text has been read and preached and others in your word, Lord, many have by your Spirit repented. We pray this be the same again today, that we would bask in the grace that is yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I always have trouble naming sermons, especially when you're doing an exposition. Uh, I kept thinking to myself as I read God reveal the sins of the northern kingdom, uh, personally, I kept asking myself, Tony, are you really sorry? Uh, he knows all my sins. I can't fool God, make it seem as though I don't sin, or I'm more holy now, uh, or that I somehow have done something to commend myself to God. Uh, I get over that really quickly. Because as the conviction comes and you see yourself in the mirror in all manner of ways, and you ask yourself, but am I really sorry? I keep doing these things, but am I really sorry? Then I came to the first verse, chapter 6, and thought, that's the best title for the sermon come, let us return to the Lord. That's really what this passage is about. And more personally, I ask myself, am I really sorry being faced with my sin and led to Christ? We have to be honest about our sin to get anywhere. And Hosea is very honest with the sins of the people, his people. Over a 60-year period, he, uh, the, the words of this prophecy uh, come. In other words, this is kind of a summary of what his whole ministry of preaching was about. A 60-year span from the time it began to the time that it ended. Honesty about our sin is so crucial before anything like repentance can happen. It was the third time the pastor had been called to the emergency room to be with a family in crisis. It was the third time in less than a year where drinking too much alcohol caused Michael to pass out and be transported to the local hospital to be treated for acute alcohol poisoning. In the earlier years, it was kind of funny. People got a kick out of how Michael got too wild at various gatherings and ended up this way. But now the times and the instances were happening closer together. Michael's children would come home, uh, unable to rouse him and have to call 911. Usually within a few hours, after being in the hospital and being admitted and he'd stay overnight sometime, he'd be then released again. On the third occasion of that year, Michael was starting to come to and be more cognizant. His wife, two adolescent children, one college-age daughter stood by his bedside. The pastor was there. And also, Michael's good friend and his wife. It was very quiet in the room for some time as Michael began interacting with the various occupants in the room. And then the doctor came in to authorize his release. And this is what the doctor said to Michael and his family. He said to everyone there gathered, Michael has a serious problem. If he continues on this path, he will die. Worse than him dying, he might cause the death of someone else. If you love him, you will do everything in your power to stop him from continuing down the course of destruction he is on. Ignoring the problem will not make it go away. Someone or some people will die very soon if nothing is done and the doctor left. Now, we have some doctors in our church, and I know that's not the typical way a doctor would address a problem. In some ways, it's not even allowed to say what he said there. But at that moment, several people in the room looked at each other as if to say, finally, someone said it. No one was talking about it. The whole time it was there, they knew it as a family. It had been developing over the years. No one just said it. Call the sin to account. Now, with that out on the table, there was an opportunity to address the issue holistically, with accountability, with reality. Now, repentance was possible because there was an honest admission of what was going on. I know it's much more complex to see resolution in a situation like this than just simply mentioning it this morning. But recognize that the prophet Hosea addressed something that had been going on for years, and finally, someone said it. It was being said, it was being addressed. And while the nation as a whole may not be seen to turn, surely many repented in the midst of that body. And how many since do you think, having heard this prophecy and others, have repented in light of it? I know sometimes we look at the prophet and say, boy, they were a failure. Jeremiah's crying for good reason. No one listened to him. Oh Well, maybe not that moment, but in the several thousand years since, how many do you think God has used to call to himself as a result of the message given here so many years ago? Another opportunity is presenting itself to us as we read of what happened in history, in the history of God's redeeming his people. It is relevant to us today to ask the question, are we being honest with our own sin? Because it's an opportunity for repentance when we are honest with it. Let's look at what is revealed about our God here in this text. First, we see very vividly in the first few verses of chapter 5 that God knows sin. He knows our sin. There's nothing we can hide from him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Hear this, O priests, Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Notice he goes from uh, his previous address in chapter 4 to the king in particular, or to the priests in particular. Now he's saying the priests, the house of Israel, the people in the house of the king, the monarchy, everybody now. For the judgment in the second part of verse 1 is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor. In other words, it is known how you have been dealing with one another. To be a snare unto one another. To cause each other to be trapped in sin. And these two cities, Mitzpah and Tabor, are noted for their woodedness. They have woodlands in them. And this is where birds are trapped in snares. That's what their lives were like with each other. They were trapping each other in sin. That's what you become like. And God knows it. He doesn't... It's not like he's surprised or they're getting away with something. Look at verse 2. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Uh, He had seen how far it had gone to the point where uh, human sacrifice was happening and other atrocious acts. Uh, That's really the picture of when it's really gone bad. When you have a culture that condones that kind of thing. It's it's, uh, only providential that today, the week that we remember the legalization of abortion. It's a telling thing about a culture that condones it. It's a telling thing for us to hear. God knows our sins. He does not overlook them. He may choose not to address them immediately in judgment, but in time that will come. He knows all. Look at verse 3. I know Ephraim. And remember, Ephraim is synonymous with the northern kingdom. Israel and Ephraim are used synonymously. Ephraim being the biggest of the tribes. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. I've been watching for a while. You think you've gotten away with it. You've got prosperity. But I've been watching. I know you. I know what you've done. I know your account. Verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. They have apostatized. They have turned away from God. Nothing that God does not know. He is totally omniscient. Meaning he knows everything. Everything. His knowledge of all things includes actual, past, present, future. God is all-knowing. His knowledge is no way then restricted to just temporal considerations. He knows and sees the past, the present, and the future with equal clarity and absolute certainty. There's nothing foggy to him or he does not ever see through a glass dimly like us. To him, all is the present in that sense. Second Chronicles says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars, he speaks to the kings in Chronicles. But Proverbs says it as well, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. Later in Proverbs 15, it says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So God knows everything, and so all these sins that he has been patient with with, to this point, he now brings to light through the prophet. God knows our sins. He knows my sins. And we've gotten sophisticated as we get older, because there's a sense in which if I can fool you all, especially those closest to me, then certainly I can fool God. Now that sounds kind of ridiculous when I just say it, because we all know, here we are in church. We're here to worship God. We can't hide from God. But you have to admit that we get so busy in our life that we think if we could just keep a good facade on, no one will really know what's going on in my heart or what's going on in this pet sin that I'm keeping or this secret thing I'm involved with. And the fact is, brothers, sisters, our Father, He sees it all. He knows us. He sees us. We're exposed totally to Him. There's no such thing as a secret sin to God. God's omniscience means that nothing anyone does escapes His knowledge. The fact of His omniscience at least I hope for you, I hope it drives you to Jesus, drives you to Christ and his righteousness, that God might look upon you and see Christ's righteousness, because I need that desperately. I have none of my own. The sins of Israel were open to God as our sins are open to God. And there's no escaping his gaze. And look what necessarily follows this exposure to our sin that God has, we might say, his justice. Always is achieved. Look again at verse 1. Hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. Look what it says. But I will discipline most of them. All of them. There's no injustice with God. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, In eternity, the scales of justice are always, always laid even. Uh, There are times where you may look and say, how does the wicked prosper? Or how is it that it's even here? And it may not seem even here, but remember this life we live in the grand scheme of your eternal existence is two seconds. Two seconds. It's all laid even, eventually. It's common on earth. And you think about when you're a kid, we do it as adults, we just don't say it out loud. You think to yourself, when someone gets a certain punishment or judgment, that's not enough. Or, that's too harsh. Or, how come they got that? Or, how come he got away with this? Brothers, sisters, that's not a reality for eternity. God's justice will always be achieved. It's starting to realize itself in this time, in this place that we're studying. Look at the fifth verse of chapter 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Not only will the northern kingdom feel this judgment, but the southern kingdom will, and it's only 150 years after the north is taken captive by Assyria, that the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. The sustaining, gracious hand of God is lifted in discipline for this time. Look at verse 6. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. This is the reference to taking sacrifices to them. Uh, They've done all these things. It's been exposed. They see what they're guilty of. So let's get some sacrifices together and bring those. And God knows the heart. And so when the motivation is simply to try to stave off something rather than to repentantly come to God, God reacts just as we see here with their flocks in verse six and herds. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. So they bring their sacrifices, but God will not meet them. The sacrifices were the obedient evidence of their right relationship with God. When they brought them without a right relationship with God, God rejects them. Sacrifices didn't earn the relationship. They evidenced the relationship. It's the same way it is today in our relationship with God. He sees the heart and he turns from that. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They were covenant breakers. Instead of shaping and influencing the culture at large, they had married the culture and literally had children into the culture and looked no different than the culture. They had born alien children. Look at verse 7, the second part. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. This is a very interesting verse to try to translate. Uh, Translators debate whether it should be new moon or new people. The words are very similar in the Hebrew language. And so it's been often surmised that really what this is supposed to say is now that the new people shall devour them with their fields, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Now, there's no large interpretive difference, whichever one it is, but it does go in context with the invasion of Assyria that is coming. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah refers to the sound of alarm because people are coming to invade. And Where they were in Ephraim is in the southern part of the northern kingdom. And so they have, from the north and from the other side on the west, they have, or the east, they have Assyria's kingdom crushing in on them. But also, notice what happens here. Verse 10. Or excuse me, back to verse 9. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel I will make known what is sure. Verse 10 says, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them. I will pour out my wrath like water. Not just Assyria is now crushing in on them, but Judah, their former partners, are pressing them from the south. They're getting it from everywhere. And that's what it means to move the landmarks. The princes of Judah are reaching into the southern portion of the northern kingdom now with their pressure. You see, the southern kingdom was concerned that if the northern kingdom got taken by Assyria, they were next. So they decided to start pushing up from the south to take some strongholds there. So if Assyria did take over, they were ready militarily. But for Israel, this is a crush. They had allied with the culture. They had allied themselves with Assyria. They enjoyed the things of Assyria. They thought Assyria was going to help them. Now Assyria is moving to take them. And even Judah, once their partner, is pressing them also. It's all coming down. And it always always, it always it comes down when we oppose God. It always does. Name one sin you've ever persisted in that ended up good. It never does. Name one sin that you thought you had control of that you really did. It masters us, not the other way around. Verse 11 says Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. You wanted all this stuff. Now I'm just going to give it to you. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. What is most tragic in this whole passage, brothers and sisters, and please don't miss it, is the desperation and despair that they have because they're being crushed. Look with their responses in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to God and repented... Ephraim went to Assyria, the pagan nation, and sent to the great king. The response of this crushing was to go and beg of the king, not of God. As if the king of Assyria would be their salvation. They see their problem. The problem they got into is because they had allied with nations that opposed their God. Now, their response when they see the crushing judgment of God is to not go to God, but to go to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria met them gladly. By making a pet of their king, by torturing those people who were in his court, by occupying that land, dispersing the people, pillaging and plundering it. That's what the king of Assyria eventually gave for their going to him. Verse 14 or verse 13, the second portion says, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound." For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. What a picture this is of, of every one of us in our sin when we persist in it. How often do we keep going back to the well? Thinking it's gonna, it'll be different this time. It'll satisfy me this time. And it never does. Instead of going to God, we go back to it like a dog returns. One of the many constant themes of Scripture, of them, few are more prevalent than the sure judgment of God for sin. Take this as our, just consider your own personal sins and the ways we battle with them. A pet sin is sort of like a pet boa. They're kind of cute if you think snakes are cute early, but they get bigger, and they get bigger. Bigger. You think you got control of it because you've had it since the time it was younger. It's going to respond, right? Next thing you know, it's tightening on you. Not a quick strike like a cobra wrapping itself around you. You're having trouble breathing now. And before you know it, its head is on your head and it's swallowing you. That's what pet sins do. They always do. They're never our friend. Even those who like snakes will have to deal with such things. They treat a sin like a pet. But here's where the tide begins to turn once again. The gracious love of our Lord. God's discipline is designed to evoke repentance and restoration. You know, judgment on a people can look like punishment or it can be discipline, depending on the relationship of the people with God and their response to it. In this case, we'll focus upon the people of God, those who repented as a result, and repent today as they hear this message again. God's discipline... Is designed to evoke repentance and restoration. Look at verse 14: For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one else shall re- and no one shall rescue. I will again return return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. He acts this way not as a mean God, but as one who has to draw us out of our self-dependence so he goes away from us, as it were, until we come and acknowledge him. This is picture of the relationship. He does it so that we will be drawn to him again in dependence upon him. This is the purpose of discipline in our lives the trials you're dealing with, the issues you can't really interpret. Why is this happening to me? I can't tell you specifically, brothers and sisters, but I know, I know they are for the drawing you closer to your God. I know that's for sure. This is why he brings even discipline into our lives. Proverbs speaks of this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son delights in. Later in Proverbs, a fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. And even older than the Proverbs, probably the oldest account in Scripture, the book of Job, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Are you suffering in some way? Maybe it's directly because of your own sin. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's someone else's sin affecting you. I don't know God's particular way out for you. I know ultimately you will not experience for this. The vast majority of your eternal existence will be spent in perfection, actually, in glory. But for now, while you're dealing with it, I can't say for sure. But I know it is meant to draw you into closer reliance and dependence upon God. Don't go to the king of Assyria for help, brothers and sisters. Covenant people of God, don't ask the king of Assyria to help you because he won't help you. He'll take you over. That's what he does. Psalm 23, verse 4, And your rod and your staff, those are used for correction. They comfort me. So, brothers and sisters, what is your response to God's call for repentance? We see this in this time and place. It has a particular application, a particular part in God's redemptive scheme, but it also has direct implication for us as we consider how our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And still, we have this relationship with God. Look at what Hosea says as he calls the people to repentance. Beautiful verses about grace in the first three verses of chapter 6. And ask yourself, what is your response today to God's call for repentance? It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. Very interesting. That we may live before Him. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Come, let us return to the Lord. That's the answer to your sin. It's not sit in judgment in the feud, just your head hung low and boy, what was me? It's head up, come to the Lord. He will revive us. He will heal us. He will provide for us what we need. This isn't gloom and doom. This is the truth which leads to joy. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, and He may heal us. He struck us down, and He'll bind us up. Repentance, we see here, is really the act of God moving things together to bring us to a place where we... In- out of a true sense of our sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ with grief and hatred of our sin, turn from it to God with full purpose and endeavor, new obedience. That's exactly right. That's exactly what God does in this work and what He does here. Verse 2. I will admit to you, this is one of the more intriguing verses I've come across in prophetic literature. After two days He will revive us on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before. Him. Many interesting theories on this verse you can only imagine. Many very interesting ones. Is this some kind of shadowy prophecy of Christ coming, uh, Christ being the one who was torn for us, and he was raised on the third day? Paul does say, we're raised together with Christ. That's possible. But I think probably more particular to the text is this concept that was in the minds of the ancients where after two days, the body started breaking down beyond the point of return, as it were. A reference to this is made when Elisha raises the widow's son. You have this two days and this is the timetable in which to do it. And it's kind of a way of Hosea saying when we repent, God saves us before it's too late, before repentance is no longer possible. This window is still there that he has opened. Verse 3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And you could see the dawn being that first light breaking into the old darkness. Uh, the showers that come in the spring over a long, dry winter with hard ground. The people here were dying because they did not have a true knowledge of God. That's what the priests were condemned for. He's saying, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And the knowledge of God means life. This is why Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's what it means when it calls us to this knowledge. It's calling us again. So there was Michael, passed out, and actually very near death. The family had watched him abused. The abuse, his abuse of alcohol spiraled totally out of control for several years leading up to this point, damaging most of his relationships. There was a sense of shame about the family. There was a sense of burden. No one wanted to look at each other straight in the eyes if they stood in the, in the hospital room. A sense of hopelessness was real. Everyone knew of the problem, but no one actually addressed it or even spoke of it with Michael, with each other. They all knew it was heading for disaster. But then one doctor spoke his mind and spoke the truth. He said what was needed to be said, and finally, someone said it. There was a sense of embarrassment at first. No one likes to admit their sins. But then there was a sense of relief, and actually a sense of hope that now it's on the table, now we can address it. Hosea, by God's power, does a similar thing. All the idol worship, all the sexual sin, all the manifold ways in which the people of God had departed from God is laid bare. Finally, someone said it. Honest confrontation of our sin is an opportunity now for repentance, for grace. How about you here today? Come, let us return to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the honesty that we see here and the full knowledge that you will not reject us when we confess our sins. That you will not cast us off. That you will not put us away from yourself. That when we come to you repentant, acknowledging our sins, O Lord, you always, always restore us. And Lord, we are constantly in need of restoration, every one of us. Thank you for the table of the Lord that is a constant reminder, a grace to us, that you save us from our sins. Lord, are we sorry? Yes, we're sorry. Heal us. Pray for the hurting person here today who recognizes their need to confess and repent of their sins. Pray that you'd move repentance in them. We know this is a saving grace. It's a gift from you. Pray that you would pour that out on us as a body of believers, old and new believers alike, that we would constantly live a life of repentance that depends on you, wholly endeavoring to live a life that brings glory to you, recognizing it cannot happen if we're not honest with the depth of our depravity. Lord, we confess this. We rejoice in the healing that is ours in Christ. Thank you for never leaving us and never forsaking us. Pray this in our Savior's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.